0: Lord God, I I pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to to take up the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God and to wield it in our hearts to subdue us to yourself, to slay sin, to make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... as we sit under the teaching of the Apostle Peter. We've seen already his emphasis on suffering. And it is a thread that runs through the book. Peter calls Christians elect exiles. We're outsiders. We're marginal people. We are minority folk. That's what following Jesus does for us. And that is Peter's message. And with a few exceptions, if you want cultural power, if you want to be an influencer and an opinion leader in the world, you are going to have to compromise your commitment to living for Jesus because the world today demands conformity to its norms and its standards As the price we pay in return. Spend five minutes in the newspapers or social media, which I totally don't advise you to do, but if you do, you will see that to be in the world today is to have to conform to their view to be acceptable at all. There seems to be no way to live in obedience to Christ and to conform to the world at the same time. And that reality is at the forefront of Peter's thinking in 1 Peter 4. He wants us to understand, embrace the character and the cost and the calling of Christ's likeness. They're they're my three points. Just the character, the cost and the calling of Christ's likeness. I advise you to check out Open Doors. Open Doors tells you stories of the persecuted church from all over the world. And one one story that gripped me this last week was of Fatima who had lived in Iran all of her life. Her earliest memories were of being sexually assaulted by members of her own family. At age 11 she was sold into marriage with a young drug addict who abused her and divorced her when she was 17. She returned home and was assaulted all over again. She fled her home. She heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed. And in time, Fatima married a Christian man. And together they undertook training in evangelism and church planting. And it wasn't long before Fatima believed that she was being called to what must have been a tremendous step to go back to her abusers and tell them about Jesus. And when she did, her whole family repented and came to faith in Christ. So the first church that Fatima and her husband planted was in her, out of her formerly abusive childhood home. And the Iranian church is now regarded as the fastest growing in the world. The Iranian church is the fastest growing in the world. The second fastest is Afghanistan. And largely because of new converts in Iran witnessing to their Afghan neighbours because their languages are quite similar. In 1979, there were 500 persecuted and suffering Christians in Iran. And I can remember 1979, so it's not that long ago. And and, and, And today, no one knows. But the Iranian church is easily hundreds of thousands. And if you were to ask, well, how is it that that church has grown? You probably, wouldn't do, you, you probably could not do any better than to look at Fatima's story and the stories of countless others like her. That's why I encourage, it really does your faith good to read these stories of faith from Open Doors and others. That's how the church has grown. Bold, godly, humble, courageous, suffering servants of Jesus Christ. That is how the church has grown. And that's what Peter is calling us to in 1 Peter 4, 1-6. Notice in 1st 1, first of all, the character of Christ's likeness. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same resolve we see in Christ, who faced suffering as he obeyed the call of the Father, is to be mirrored in us. And we too likewise will be called to suffer for him. That is Peter's exhortation and I want you to see two things about it. First of all, Peter is writing in anticipation of the suffering that he expects to be normal, a normal part of the average Christian life. He wants to forewarn and forearm us, to prepare us to get ready because suffering is coming. And brothers and sisters, to follow Christ is to take up your cross and to go in his footsteps to the place of crucifixion. And secondly, in the text, the preparation that he's calling us to takes place particularly in the mind, in the way that we think. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, you see that? So it's not really, it's not really the focus isn't on behaviour but an outlook, perspective, motivation, attitude, conviction. I think we struggle with suffering as Christians because we think that we are entitled to a comfortable life. We think that our comfortable lives are ours by right. Now, we may be the first to buy in to the crass, name it and claim it, lies of the televangelists, who are hawking their wares of health wealth and prosperity in exchange for a donation it really is offensive to see somebody talking about christ and then blazoned across the bottom is paypal or whatever it is we don't buy that but we can fall easily without knowing into a more subtle version of the same error when we begin to believe that if we just read our bibles enough and if we prayed enough that if we raised our children with high moral standards and a good worth ethic, if we're decent, hard-working church folk, then God owes us a happy life. But you see, when we begin to believe that, if not consciously in some deep layer of our convictions, if we begin to operate on that basis and then suffering comes we have no way to accommodate it into our thinking. It always stuck with me, Matt Chandler, he's a pastor from, from the United States. And for some reason he felt the Lord was calling him many years ago to, to teach on suffering at his church. And, he, you know, and it was his church was a young church, student church. And he taught on suffering for six months. And he knew that the Lord was telling him to prepare his church for suffering. And then on Thanksgiving Day... I can't remember the exact year. He was laid low with a brain tumor and very nearly died. And then he said, "You know." And then, um, you know, he's okay now, and he's still ministering now. But he, he realized that the Lord was preparing him for suffering in teaching the church. Our church, every church, needs to have a theology of suffering. Yusra and I still remember that we went when we went in Vienna. I remember sitting by the bedside of somebody in hospital who was in there with an infection and who was just so angry that she was there because she had done the right things. She had done the right things, so why am I here? Our faith can take a serious hit. I prayed after all. I gave money to the church. I was kind. I believe in Jesus. This should not be happening to me. I thought God was on my team. I put myself on his. And Peter says, I want you to to arm yourself with the same thinking. The same thinking that you see in Jesus. Peter says, arm yourself with the same thinking that you see in Jesus, who understood that the path of obedience means suffering. So get ready. I think that's the first point. The second is the cost of Christlikeness. That was the character of Christlikeness. The second is the cost. If you look at verses 1 through 3 again and follow the logic of Peter's reasoning, with me as carefully if you can. So he wants us to arm ourselves with a Christlike mindset. That faith is suffering with courage, humility, and then he gives us the reason, the motivation Why does it matter so much? Well, look at the text. Have this Christ-like mindset for, so here is the reason, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I thought I was past the worst, by the way, last week when I finished with 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Then I came to this verse and I thought, I've forgotten this verse. (laughs) It's because a misunderstanding of this verse and several others in the New Testament have led some in the history of the church to propose that a Christian might be able to attain this side of glory, sinless perfection. You can cease from sin in this life, so that is clearly possible. That's the argument. I think the best way to to describe that is a a story that a man once told Charles Spurgeon that he had arrived at the position of being without sin. I think that was a bold thing to say to anybody, but to say that Spurgeon probably wasn't the wisest. Um, And Spurgeon, doubtless, rather curious, invited the man Home for dinner. And over the meal, during conversation, the man repeated his claim, I am now without sin, quite a few times. (laughs) It really is quite funny, the story. You may well have heard it. But they were still dining at the table. The man was in full flow of how he was without sin. And Spurgeon suddenly got his glass of water and threw it in his face. And uh, the man erupted in anger. (laughs) And began... He actually used a word that should not have flown, flowed from the lips of a Christian. And Sir Spurgeon sat there rather meekly until the man gave him opportunity to speak. And then he said, Ah, do you see? The old man within you is not yet dead. He had simply fainted, and all he needed to do was be revived with a cup of cold water. And uh, I'm reminded of, of one John... One verse eight: if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So people who say that they've attained sinless perfection, I very really like to meet that person because I know my own heart, but they are self-deceived and are possibly trying to deceive you too. Peter doesn't mean to suggest it's possible to stop sinning, but he's highlighting the options before us as Christians. He's saying there is a connection between following Jesus and the suffering that will bring and progress in overthrowing the power of sin in your heart. There's a connection between suffering and sanctification and turning away from the world and its standards to life on God's terms. And he wants to highlight that. Faced with persecution... And that is the form of suffering that Peter is highlighting in his letter. Not just general suffering, but persecution, opposition from those who reject the gospel. Faced with that kind of persecution and opposition, Christians have to answer for themselves is Christ's likeness worth it? Is Christ Himself worth it? I can choose. Jesus, I can choose a life on his terms, a life that says no to sin, that turns its back on the pleasures of sin, that ceases from sin, or I can choose worldliness and blend right in. But if I choose the former, it will hurt. And that is what verse 1 is telling us. Whoever suffers for Christ has ceased from sin. They have turned from it. They've said to themselves over and over and to the world, to their friends, I would rather have Jesus with trials than sin and friendship with the world. I would rather have Jesus with wounds than sin with earthly acclaim. I would rather have Jesus with suffering than sin with success. And they have resolved, as verse 2 puts it, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And if you think about it, there are people in this room I know who know a fair bit about this actually, because you've faced, at some point in your Christian pilgrimage, the choice between Jesus and some of your most cherished friendships on the other. You love your friends dearly, but the closer you stick to Christ, the less they seem to like you. The more you conform your life to God and his Word, the less your friends want to be around you. So you have to decide, who do I love the most? Jesus or my so-called friends. And if it is my friends that I want the most, then if the cost of it, the cost of joining in, is sin and worldliness, if the ticket to, to being accepted is sin and worldliness, that is the price they put on their friendship. But if it's Jesus I want more than silver or gold, You need to face the possibility you might lose friends. Some of you have faced that dilemma in the workplace. Some of you at school. When I join in, blend in, fit in, be accepted. Or will I stand my ground gently, lovingly, faithfully. Follow follow Christ nevertheless and be excluded and scorned and dismissed. Maligned as Peter says. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a simple choice. Avoid suffering. Avoid suffering. Embrace worldliness. That's, you know, that seems to be one choice. Or endure suffering and avoid sin. It may actually help you. It helps me to remember that a readiness to endure hardship and suffering helps me endure hardship and suffering to know that my suffering is not simply a consequence of Christ's likeness, not a consequence of, but it's used by God to make me like Christ. It helps me to be willing to go through it if I know that God intends my suffering to make me more like Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes, suppose that you are up against a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. And I know this actually impersonal truth. The kinder the surgeon is, the more he will cut. And if he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, the pain would have been useless. Isn't that a, br- isn't that a brilliant picture? The pain would have been useless. And then he says, what do people mean When say I'm not afraid of God because I know He is good. Have they ever been to a dentist? (laughs) Well, that's a great way to put it, and it's too soon for some, I know. But what is God doing in our suffering? He's teaching you to say no to sin and self and to cling to Jesus. He wants you to see that Jesus is enough. My dear friend, Jesus is sufficient. He is enough, he's more than enough. And as you turn from sin to the Saviour, you grow in Christlikeness. You're suffering because God is good, not despite it, because he is. He's making you like his son. He is a good surgeon, doing heart surgery in your conscience to wean you from worldliness and make you more like Jesus. Peter tells us it is time to get real about living for Jesus the time is past and he gives this long list of sins that marked his generation and frankly mark us and there and the consequences of it living like this passions drunkenness orgies drinking parties that's happening quite a lot right now and it seems to be that coronavirus spreads because of it there's, there's even practical consequences as well But the past is where your indulgence in this kind of behaviour really belongs because deferred holiness is disobedience. I think we've often had a hard time embracing that, deferred holiness is disobedience because we bargain with ourselves. Well, I haven't said no, but just not today. You know, tomorrow I... You know, and that's why that hymn, If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. This is a description of our society and they're not only description of unbelievers. Peter is saying this kind of behaviour belongs in the past. Deferred holiness is disobedience and has no place in the Christian life. We live in a culture of niceness. Though I'm not so sure any longer. And we can be uncomfortable with the thought of being offensive to anybody. Unless you use Twitter. But we, haven't, but we have got to be comfortable with it because if you put... Christ first. Look at what happens. They are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood. The simple fact is consistent Christians are enigmas to the world. We are very strange people. You will surprise people. You will offend people. They will feel judged by you. Not because you were judgmental, but because you didn't embrace their sinful choices as your choice so they feel judged by you. It's bonkers, but that's where it is. And that will result with open hostility. If you don't join in the sin, you are regarded as bonkers. And the the Christians to whom Peter is writing were already beginning to endure it. They were beginning to receive opposition. And I imagine them reading this part of Peter's letter and thinking... I could have really used the word of encouragement. They're going to be surprised when you don't join in and they're going to malign you. But Peter wants to root us in the real world. And we do need to count the cost of following Jesus. In the first 300 years of being a Christian, you didn't sign up for the coffee, cake, for the coffee and cake. You signed up to live in the catacombs and be killed. And so, so Peter wants us... To get James 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. But notice before we move on that Peter is clear that if there's a price to pay for following Jesus, it's nothing compared to the price of rejecting him. Verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I shuddered when I read that. I shuddered when I read that. Because at the time Peter was writing, Jesus was ready to judge the living and the dead. Have you, do you ever wonder why Judgment Day hasn't happened? Is it because Jesus isn't ready? No, Peter said Jesus was ready then. Jesus is ready right now. The reason judgment day hasn't happened is nothing to do with Jesus. So why the delay? And that's the last thing I want you to see in the passage. So we have the character of Christ likeness, we have the cost of Christ likeness and finally the calling of Christ likeness. The calling laid upon everyone who follows Jesus is to make Jesus known. It is to proclaim the good news. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might love in the spirit the way God does. Because Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead, the gospel is to be preached with urgency to everyone, just like it had been preached to people who had died by the time Peter was writing. Peter's readers were beginning to experience the first generation to die as Christians. This is the first generation of Christians to die. And probably some of them thought that Christ would return and Judgment Day would dawn while they were still alive. And now they were struggling because their brothers and sisters are dying. I thought Jesus was coming back. And Peter explains, although they were judged in the flesh, which means they had died the way people do, because they'd heard the Gospel, because they'd accepted Jesus while there was time, they live in the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, the life of God is their life. What is Peter's point? Jesus has not yet judged the world, although he is ready. People are dying before he returns. Why the delay? Because Jesus wants the gospel to sound from the suffering church. We're just, with such force and clarity and boldness that those who persecute and absorb oppose and the line may have every opportunity instead to repent and believe the gospel john piper tells the story of from j oswald sanders about an evangelist in india who trudged on foot to various villages preaching the gospel and he was a simple man with no education who just loved jesus and he came to a village that hadn't had the gospel it was late in the day and he was tired he went into the village And he shared the good news in the marketplace. They mocked him, derided him, drove him out of town. He was so tired, so discouraged, he lay down under a tree and went to sleep. Not really bothered if he ever woke up. Suddenly after dark, he was startled and the whole town surrounded him. And he thought, well, this is it, this is it, this is the end. And one of the big men in the village stepped forward and said, we came to see what kind of man you are. When we saw your blistered feet, we know you're a holy man. And we want you to, to tell us, why were you willing to get blistered, blistered feet to come and talk to us? And he preached the gospel and the whole village believed. And I think that is a beautiful picture, but an apt illustration of Peter's teaching in our passage. Suffering for Christ is real, so get ready. Arm yourself. But choosing Jesus, even though it means suffering, means progress in Christ's likeness. It means saying no to sin. It's the kind of Christ's likeness that opened the door for the gospel for that evangelist in India. And Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. So time is short. Pour yourself out for the glory of king jesus go and preach the gospel across your street suffer for your savior the day is at hand so go with the good news to the ends of the earth while there is yet time and rescue the perishing peter wants us to say with martin luther let goods and kindred go this mortal life also this body they may kill god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever Brothers and sisters, my message is very simple, that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Make much of him as you suffer for him before the eyes of the watching world. And if you're not a Christian today, I wouldn't be faithful to Peter's message if I didn't say this. I want you to sense the urgency of Peter's teaching. You don't have all the time in the world. You don't have all the time in the world. Tomorrow is not time enough to be serious about Jesus. He is ready today to judge the living and the dead. No one knows the day or the hour. He will come like a thief in the night. And the only question is, will you be ready? The only reason he is delayed is that the gospel might be preached. The only reason he is delayed is that today, you can listen to me saying that there is a savior for you in Jesus Christ today is the day of salvation flee the wrath to come and put your trust in the Lord Jesus the character of Christ likeness we need to be ready the cost of Christ likeness god is a good surgeon who wields the scalpel of suffering to make you like jesus and the call of Christ likeness Make him known. Brothers and sisters, he is worth it. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and our eternal good. Amen.